Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. This week, our guest is Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab. Lizanne has had a wide-ranging career in finance, starting her career working for Marty Zweig. She was a regular panelist and guest host of Wall Street Week with Louis Ruckheiser and spent time at U.S. Trust before Schwab acquired the firm in the year 2000. Lizanne is a familiar face for those who follow the markets, regularly appearing in a number of outlets to discuss top-down views of the markets and the economy. Welcome to Liz Ann Saunders, who uh, has been kind enough to join us today uh, from Charles Schwab. She's the chief investment strategist over at Charles Schwab. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is a great conversation to have, and we've had a pretty volatile week in the markets with the U.S. election, so uh, lots to get into. But I figured we could start off first with a little bit of a uh, background on your career and who you are. Um, so you attended the University of Delaware, correct? Correct. Yes, undergraduate. Yep. And you did economics and political science there. Right. I, so officially, my degree was in international relations. But when I started at Delaware, that was not yet a uh, a formal major. It wasn't until halfway through. So it, the, the path to get that major was double majoring in economics and political science. So that's effectively what the uh, what the coursework was. That's great. I, I had a similar program uh, in my undergrad that that was ostensibly a public policy major, but the reality was it sort of combined a bunch of stuff from a bunch of different degree programs. And um, I found that enormously helpful uh, in sort of talking about markets and understanding markets and economics over the years as opposed to a straight economics or straight finance degree. Have, have you sort of found a similar? I, I, I did, except that I, I'm always the first to to let folks know, maybe because I, I'm, I'm 30 years out of undergraduate school, that when I talk to students, prospective students, current students, or or kids that have just graduated and they're they're very worried about the specific course load that they took in undergraduate school and its applicability and, and what would help or hurt them in, in, in hunting for a job. And I, I think the thing we, we learn most in, in college is, is how to transition from being kids to adults, how to learn, how to learn, how to uh, balance you know, work and play and how to think critically as opposed to the specificity of what we learned in, in the classes. So. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with the, the choices that I made in undergraduate school, and I think it was a, a broad a set of courses that I took, and I think it did expose me to a lot of things, but arguably I've learned, you know, 99.9% of what I know is from the 30 years I've worked in this business, not the four years I spent in college. <laughs> right, of course. So it's a, it's a foundation and a framework as opposed to exactly. a set of facts. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think we'll sort of get into a, a little bit more of that framework aspect later. But um, following your undergraduate uh, at University of Delaware, you went on to uh, Fordham University where you did an MBA in finance. And obviously that that's a much more practical sort of approach to the industry versus um, the sort of soft skills and framework stuff that you do in undergraduate. And and that's that was equally useful for you in terms of... Yes. And in fact, what was interesting about Fordham, the, the backstory there was when I first um, started uh, working at Zweig Avatar in 1986, I knew I wanted to go to business school right away. And I, um, I didn't have the option to apply at uh, Columbia because at the time they, they only had a full-time uh, program. NYU had a part-time program, but the requirement was that you had to have been working for at least two years. Uh, so I applied anyway, got waitlisted there, but but got into Fordham and, and spent a bit of time talking to Marty Zweig, one of my first bosses and mentors who had been a college professor actually at, uh, at Baruch, uh, to ask him what he thought. And he said, well, I, I think you should start right away and I would recommend you, you go to Fordham. And part of the reason for that recommendation was not only that I could start right away, 
but they had a trimester, and I think they still do, at what is, by the way, interestingly now called the Gabelli School of, uh, of Business. It wasn't at the time, but it, it is now, which is kind of a, a, a neat thing since Mario Gabelli is a, is a, is a good friend of mine. But they, they worked on trimesters. So when going part-time, you were going almost a full year with the exception of an August break. So it allowed you to finish uh, much more quickly. And then maybe even more important, a lot of the professors at the business school were, were professors that worked during the day and taught at night. So for instance, the head of my M&A course was one of the heads of M&A at Lazard at the time. So there was a lot of practical application uh, to what we were learning and what was happening in the real world, as opposed to just the theory that sometimes you get from lifelong professors. So I do think that its relationship to what I did at the time and still do uh, was was maybe added, aided by by the fact that a lot of the professors I had worked on Wall Street during the day. And that's so fascinating too, because there are certainly some business school professors that 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 sort of take a, that similar approach where they're doing one thing during the day and then they teach as a side gig. Um, I had a couple different mentors uh, in my undergraduate time that, that had a similar sort of setup, but that's really not the norm. There's been an enormous degree of specialization, I feel like, both in business education and throughout the financial industry as a whole, where you know, you're either a banker or a teacher, or you're you know either a, a public markets person or a private markets person, or I mean, there's a million different distinctions we could talk about there, but it, that sort of specialization seems to have been something that has happened across the industry as a whole. It's, it's interesting you would flag the the practical side of things from your business school education as being so valuable because that seems to be on the decline. Well, it's the, and I agree, it's the link between the theory of financial markets and the um, application within financial markets. So whether it's um, our learnings about modern portfolio theory and capital asset pricing model, but then the reality of, of how that works in the real world um, and sometimes how it doesn't work in the real world. And the fact that sometimes there's no relationship between the theories we learn in, in graduate school or in books and what is actually happening in the markets. And I think certainly more these days, we've seen a, a greater disconnect between how the markets are supposed to work based on theory and how they're actually working. So is there an interesting sort of specific example you could uh, you could come up with around that, something that's really been glaring to you lately as far as? Well, I, I think just in terms of, of the, the pricing of, of securities and asset classes, I think these days there is so much more of a driver associated with, with macro um, and geopolitics. We're certainly experiencing it now and the, the influence of monetary policy and central bankers on the behavior of, of markets, which really you can sometimes throw out the uh, traditional ideas of, of discount rate models and, and the capital asset pricing model and, and the, the efficiency, you know, efficient frontier, because I think that the drivers uh, aren't, aren't ones that necessarily can be explained in, in finance textbooks. So I think we're, we're living it in a broad sense, really, in this kind of post-financial crisis era. So you specifically mentioned the discount rate model and, and you know, one of the fundamental things that you'll learn in economics or um, was certainly present in my degree is this sort of idea that everything has a present value. It can be discounted back to um, the current uh, value. The, the, the future cash flows can be discounted back to the present value via this interest rate. And this is sort of this fundamental thing. Do you, do you think that that, whether it applies to a cash flow statement on uh, public equity, whether it applies to um, certain parts of the bond market, whether it applies to public finance and, and public policy, do, do you think that that model has broken down somewhat um, in an era when interest rates are just so much lower than they have been in recent history? Or do you think it's just a sort of an extreme application of, of that of that of that framework that hasn't really changed so I think it depends on time horizon I think ultimately over the very long term um, those uh, you know methods for valuing uh, companies or, or or beyond just individual securities I think still works but in the short term um, it's not that it's been debunked uh, I just don't think it's relevant and I uh, some of it is a function of the Fed having gone to zero percent interest rates, of course, globally, other central banks haven't gone into negative interest rates. So, you know, price discovery uh, has really changed. But I, I do still believe in traditional fundamentals um, driving uh, prices over the very long term. But in the short term, 
I think the, attempting to apply those traditional metrics for certainly for valuing uh, companies, uh, I don't think is is, is terribly helpful in, in in trying to you know put together successful investment strategies. Now, also keep in mind though that um, you're barking up the wrong tree here with me as it relates to individual uh, security analysis because although. I started in this business and spent, I guess, my first 16 years managing money. So I spent a lot of time in bottom-up research and, and analyzing companies and industries. And I do virtually none of that right now. I am I am purely macro top-down, literally and figuratively flying around at 30,000 feet. And frankly, I don't miss the bottom-up anymore because I do think it's much more difficult uh, right now. It's not part of my job, so I don't have to do it. But uh, it's part of the reason why I wouldn't want to go back uh, to a to a bottom up uh, uh, you know aspect of my career. So there has been a lot of discussion around this sort of shift that may be underway post crisis. There was this massive focus on sort of momentum strategies and um, you know not as much bottom up stock picking. Do you think that's going to continue, or do you think that this is like like a business cycle or like a political cycle, like any other kind of human behavior where you get sort of stuff coming in and out? And right now we're in a period when the the bottom-up um, value-oriented approach nuts and bolts um, you know stock picking really um, is at sort of a, a a nadir but but could come back or do you think the world has has really changed in that respect yeah so I guess it, at the heart of it it's the active versus passive uh, question that I think everybody is trying to answer right now and I think there's a, a cyclical component and answer and a secular component and answer I think this this trend toward passive over active, um, as it relates to things like uh, fees and performance, I think is a is probably a secular trend, i.e., uh, isn't isn't reversing anytime soon. But then there's the more fundamental cyclical component of it, which is that, given the 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 um, impact of macro on on asset class performance, given the dominance and power of central bankers. On uh, you know economic fundamentals globally, all of all of that has conspired to dramatically increase correlations across asset classes, which uh, therefore means that 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 passive is set up to do better than uh, than active. But I think that that is more likely a cyclical phenomenon, not a secular permanent uh, phenomenon. And that from a cyclical uh, standpoint, as we move away from you know, QE infinity, and we move away from an environment of negative interest rates, and, and we start to see more uh, fiscal policy interact with what has been monetary policy being the only game in town, I think we're going to start to see correlations come down a bit, which starts to level the playing field a little bit uh, and allows a, a platform for, for active to ostensibly outperform passive. Now, then of course it comes down to the the minds and the hands operating the 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 active money and and whether they have success in doing so. So it doesn't guarantee that every active manager is going to perform better in that environment, but the opportunities I think will will be greater. But I do think there is that secular piece of it. I also think when we look at you know demographics and generations, I think the younger generation has been born into an era of investing that is biased toward uh, passive. So I think that that's where their, their, their biases are. And I also think that it lends itself to the, the, the way I think younger generations uh, like to invest. They're not, they're not as passionate about investing as our generation was. They, they sort of grew up in an era of financial crises and bear markets. And, and they also, just without generalizing, but I think sometimes you can, um, they uh, they're not as interested in, in in handling their own money, managing their own money. I think that's the reason for the success of of you know robo advice to use the generic uh, term. And I think that those changes in terms of demographics and the the psyche of an investor of, of uh, a generation of investors, I think keeps some support under the the passive model over the active model. So I, I think the two, will be able to coexist uh, a little bit better in, in sort of looking ahead to the medium to long term. But I think uh, there, there's still plenty of reason to think passive is here to stay. You had mentioned there that there is this long trend towards um, passive and 
away from sort of active uh, portfolio management from individual investors. So a lot of what you do is, is as a chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab is talking to individ individual investors who are running their 401k or running their um, you know taxable accounts who are saving for the future or you know maybe doing a bit of speculation, however you want to describe it. How does talking to these kinds of investors differ from talking to um, institutionalized large-scale portfolio management teams that that sort of operate in a in a bit of a different universe? I guess in its simplest form, when you're talking to institutions, really, other than maybe if you're talking to, you know, a, a hedge fund uh, where all the players have money invested in that hedge fund. So it, you are talking about their money, but but as opposed to whether it's, you know, pension funds or endowments, foundations, you know, corporate plans, um, that's a very different animal than talking to an individual about their money. Um, I think the relationship is just a bit uh, different. That said, I think in terms of individual investors, um, we have seen quite a dramatic shift as, as well. Individual investors now have access to whether it's asset classes, to asset allocation plans and programs, avenues to receive advice that is much more accessible. So I, I certainly give give my company, Charles Schwab, a tremendous amount of credit for being at the forefront of this democratization of investing for individuals. I, I think that you know no one has done more to uh, to move us along that path than than you know Chuck Schwab as a, as a person and Charles Schwab as a company. And I, I we have certainly seen that in in the, the what what our client base looks like individual investors that historically may have been do-it-yourself investors, a bit more trading-oriented, managed their own money, did it in a fairly simple uh, approach with, with stocks, bonds, and cash, and now programs, advice-type programs that allow them to, to have much more diversification across asset classes, much more sophisticated portfolios, and, and the advice that goes uh, along with it. Uh, so I, I just, I, I like I like speaking uh, to individual investors. I think they're much less jaded. Um, they're 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 much more engaged uh, often because again, it's their own it's their own money. Um, I also find that the individuals that actually have established um, a plan, they're not winging it. Um, they they actually uh, think about this and they 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 take as much time and give as much attention to their investments as they do many other things in their life. That's been one of the themes of, of, of Schwab's message out there and, and um, sometimes funny videos that will play at internal uh, conferences where we talk about people who will spend hours and hours and days worth of hours going through the details of the next car that they're going to buy and what the interior looks like and then the nature of the stereo system. And we just, historically have not taken anywhere near the same approach to setting up our, our, you know, our, our investment structure and planning for our retirement as we do many of the other decisions that we make in our, our, our lives. And, and I think that Schwab has been one of those firms that has really put a lot of power in individuals' hands to, um, to uh, you know, as we would say, sort of own your tomorrow and, and uh, really take control and ownership of, uh, of, of your own investment lives. And I think the access to information, the access to advice and uh, a lower cost associated with that has really given individuals a tremendous amount of, of power now. So I, part of the things that, one of the things I love and the main thing I love about Schwab is that our, our, our clients are, are all individual, ostensibly all individual investors. And I, I just think that that's, that's a better audience um, for, for what we do, certainly for what I do. And I also think the feedback I get from individuals is much more helpful to me in understanding the way the, the world works than if I was you know, solely sitting in front of institutions all day. There has been a huge shift over the years from sort of very broadcast, um, you know, tight source um, media, for instance, uh, one or two uh, programs on broadcast uh, television to an absolute explosion in availability around analysis, opinion, um, data in financial markets that is, is basically free to access. You know, you might have to pay a cable bill and your internet bill, but um, the combination of uh, multiple business 
TV networks, CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg, uh, with all the traditional outlets, for instance, the Wall Street Journal, which has been around almost as long as American capital markets have been, um, with free sources of information like Twitter, um, that sort of thing. You, earlier in your career, spent a lot of time um, on Wall Street Week um, co-hosting and and sort of uh, facilitating discussions with investors there. How have you seen that, that sort of um, diversification and um, I mean, almost balkanization, really, of financial information change how people think about the market, how the market operates itself. Um, what do you think about that dynamic? So I, I think it's a great question. I think it's it's one of the defining characteristics of of the the change in investing over the the past call it decade or so. I, I think that the era of Wall Street Week with Louis Kaiser, when it was the only game in town in terms of you know financial uh, news a program that devoted itself to to money in wall street and investments and and the economy and it for decades it was the only game in town and it i i think i often say it was a kinder gentler age of financial television but that sometimes suggests that therefore it was not as informational it didn't it didn't help as much uh, but i also think there may have been a greater benefit to an era like that. Uh, you know, it's wonderful that there's immediate access to information of every variety. The problem is that I think it's it's had some negative implications, not least being time horizons that have shrunk quite significantly uh, by individual investors. Uh, the the ease with which you know one can pull the trigger is there, and the information that might drive that decision. It, you know, you drink it from a fire hose every day and trying to weed through that information and, and figure out what is, you know, editorial commentary and what's actual information, I think is a bit um, tricky. So I, I don't know that I would want to go back to an era where we don't have access to that information, but uh, it can it can be dangerous as well. If you look back over the very long term and you look at whether it's holding periods of individual securities or holding periods of mutual funds, I mean, that has shrunk precipitously to, to uh, you know, the most recent data suggesting it's well less than a year. And then, of course, we know that that some of the most dominant players in the market um, using, using lowercase letters, high-frequency traders, not just the self-proclaimed uppercase high-frequency trading firms, but... Uh, but a variety of, of investment vehicles and, and firms that operate with time horizons, in this case, measured in nanoseconds, let alone you know, weeks or, or quarters. And I think that that has had lots of ripple effects into, into the market, uh, which is one of the reasons why our message has been, uh, you know, it's wonderful to educate yourself with all of the information, but if it if it has really changed the psychology around investing, and you find that you you have a you know an itch your trigger finger, um, and you're making more emotional decisions, then that can have very deleterious implications for portfolio performance. And it's one of the reasons why we we really try to to uh, you know, pound home this notion that reasonably long time horizon probably makes even more sense in an environment where time horizons have shortened because it's easy to say, okay, I need to shorten my time horizon and play the trading game because um, that's what the big boys are doing. But the problem there is that markets then move on um, a million other factors, sometimes very separate from fundamentals, but our firm belief that over the medium to long term that there will continue to be a connection between prices and 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 uh, fundamentals, and that if you lengthen the time horizon, you keep the noise um, out of portfolio returns, you keep the emotion out of portfolio returns, and at the end of the day, you're probably better off uh, with a with a longer time horizon. So, but it's tough. Um, it is tough, and and it, you know, in terms of the media. Uh, I think uh, they're certainly party to it. Uh, probably the most common question I get these days is some form of, you know, should investors get in or get out? And that was never a question that was asked in the era of Wall Street Week. Uh, not only that, but um, today's television is is very driven by by sound bites and uh, not full sentences. And that's that's why I always enjoy things like what you and I are doing here uh, today, because you get to answer in full sentences. You get to sort of dive into um, rationale and theory and, and not just be at the whim 
of, of short-term emotions. And so I think uh, there are both pros and cons, but for lots of reasons, I, uh, I, I miss that era of financial television, but I also miss, miss the show and what it was about, and I certainly miss Lou. With the sort of advent of very easy to use, very easy to scale distribution platforms, I mean, Twitter is a great example, but there are a million other ones. Uh, we distribute uh, research from bespoke to clients via our blog, via um, emailed PDFs. There are a number of different avenues. How has research distribution changed? Because in you know when you started your career in the 1980s, uh, it was a lot harder to move you know five pages of information across a thousand miles, right? I mean, it's just it, it, not impossible, but it's just a different world now. So how has that sort of changed for you in your day to day? Oh, it's changed dramatically. You know, when I started in the business, uh, the research that I received from um, firms. Typically back then, it was a lot of research from the traditional big wirehouse firms. So it was Goldman Sachs research, and Morgan Stanley and Payne Weber, and it was across their macro folks, as well as industry analysts and individual company analysts. It really was sort of that traditional era of Wall Street. And the provision of research was either, you know, big, thick books, hard copies that you receive in snail mail. So certainly not the, necessarily the most timely but also via conversation. Uh, the daily calls that I would get from every single salesperson, institutional salesperson that covered me. I mean, a lot of these are terms we don't even hear of anymore. So that would cover me and they'd, I, I'd, get a, I'd get, I don't know, a dozen at least calls every single morning from the institutional salespeople. They would just come out of their morning meetings and they'd talk about what the individual company analysts or the industry analysts or their economists were saying. You'd, you'd have lunch with some of those folks. So it, the, the, the pace at which we received the information was much, much, much slower. But a lot of the information was much more in depth than what we get right now. I wouldn't go back to that era. I love the various channels through which we get information, the fact that it's immediate. You know I love bespoke research. I think it's fantastic. One of the things I love about it and where I bias my research that I do on my own, as well as the research I appreciate from others, is I like that it's actually fact-based. It's it's not pure editorial, it's not pure opinion. It actually has a basis in fact and history. And that uh, is a, I think a much better guide for what is going to happen than just um, you know making assumptions and, and certainly um, uh, being kind of bombastic. That's the other factor I think, certainly with social media, um, everybody wants to be a star and everybody wants to have that, that right call on on the market and, and that gets um, fed through uh, social media. I, I use social media more for quick links to research that I like to read and to news outlets that, that, that I am a, a fan of. I, I, I tend to stay away from more of the reality TV aspects of, of social media. And I mean that within the financial services, I certainly don't, don't I don't follow Kim Kardashian or, or, or any of the other folks that have a lot of attention on social media, but I do find it's a very quick way to keep up on what's going on. I'm, I'm very particular with, with you know, what, what um, uh, areas I follow, and that's how I get a lot of the news. And I think when you go through an environment like we've been in the last several weeks with this very unique election... <laughs> Um, uh, that was a great source of, uh, of information, uh, certainly a great uh, source for various opinions too, which I think you have to be careful and make sure you've got, you've got appropriate mental filters for, for what is valuable and helpful and, and, and what is not. And you do have to learn to weed some of that out. My husband said something a couple of weeks ago at a, at a dinner gathering that we had that I think really just crystallized what what we're experiencing and one of the perils I think of social media and and the era of texting and and email and as opposed to personal interactions and the fact that people don't read as much anymore. Peggy Noonan wrote a great op-ed a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal about superficiality and and um, how we focus more on on headlines and what we think that the information associated with those gives us as opposed to really understanding what's going on and. My husband said, you know what, you're right. These days we are notified, but not informed. And I think that that really crystallized one of the, the, the perils of this era that we're in right now, that we, that we are notified a ton, but we're less informed probably than we've been in the past. That's a nice segue right there into uh, sort of talking about the election. Um, 
this was a social media fueled election in a lot of ways. The outcome surprised a lot of people. And I think the market reaction surprised a lot of people as well. We've kind of gone on a zigzag a bit here in the last 24 hours just to set the stage. So immediately after the election, we saw S&P futures trade limit down, uh, down 8% uh, at about midnight on the night polls were reported. We then saw a huge rally off those lows. Um, stock markets were up 1% to 2% yesterday. And then this morning, right as we were about to start recording this, so this is the Thursday after the election, uh, we saw a large cap tech start to get hit intraday. Some of the big gains from yesterday sort of started to cool off a bit and people started to sort of question some of the assumptions that drove a lot of the snap reaction and then the reaction to the snap reaction. So, I, I mean, it would be great to just sort of get a, a quick you know, view from you on, on what you think the election means for the markets. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be too comprehensive, but um, it is kind of a tough one to puzzle through with, you know, a lot of nuance, I think, that that is largely getting over overlooked uh, by investors. No question about that. And I, the, the real uh, quick, quick answer is, is, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, and this is this is unprecedented for a lot of, of reasons, not least being that we don't really have a sense of what the policies are going to look like uh, because of, of the unique character that is that is now the president-elect and whether uh, there is a, a, a no difference between candidate Trump and President Trump or whether there's a gaping distance between candidate Trump and President Trump. And I think that's what we are all trying to digest in terms of the short-term market reaction, there's almost an irony when thinking about it because we, we now know very clearly that what everyone expected based on the traditional ways that we, we, we judge the outcome of an election before it actually happens, polls more recently, the betting markets, um, had no value in telling us what was actually going to happen. So we had the, an outcome that was, uh, was completely opposite what what, what you know, relative to expectations. So why then in the immediate aftermath of that, did we make assumptions about what the market was going to do? I think it's, you can almost giggle at the fact that while well, the election didn't pan out as anybody thought based on history, well, the market reaction didn't pan out as anybody thought based on assumptions or, or history. But I also think it probably reflected a lot of positioning that that um, occurred and hedging that occurred leading into the election and then the unwinding of that. So I think we, we still have to let the dust settle here a little bit, not just in terms of, okay, what does this mean? What is the cabinet going to look like? What are the policy priorities going to be? Which are economic positives or negatives? Uh, you know, what even with a full Republican Congress uh, might be policies that, that may actually get pushed back on by even members of the own party. Because I think what was, what was so unique about this election is it wasn't Republican versus Democrat. It wasn't right versus left. It was establishment versus um, non-establishment, anti-establishment. And the establishment versus anti-establishment is is purple it's gray it's not it's not red or blue it is it, it it crosses party lines and we saw that in what really was the kind of the rewriting of the electoral college map and and whether it was at the um income level or the uh, gender level it, it really just the the aspects that, that caused people to make the decision one way or another that they did really was less about Republican versus Democrat, which means that if you lay out the policy proposals that, that Trump had on, on the platform and you assume that they will rank high on the priority list, some of them are areas that have historically been uh, areas where Democrats are, are very in favor of, and others have been areas where Republicans are very in favor of, and vice versa in terms of, of areas where Democrats were, were, were sort of vehemently uh, uh, opposed to. Um, certainly trade would be one of them. The GOP is known as, as very pro um, open trade. And, and that was uh, clearly one of the, the primary pillars. Um, ostensibly, that is, that is uh, one of the biggest potential economic negatives, not just for the U.S. and globally. So the question is, does he back away from that? Does that move down the that priority spectrum on, on taxes and, and regulations? Clearly, that was part of his platform that does tend to be 
largely areas that uh, that the GOP generally pushes for. So if that moves up the priority spectrum, you could argue that that may be what the market is sniffing out with its rally. But but we're one day in, <laughs> and I, I I I wouldn't I wouldn't attempt to try to gauge what the market is going to do as it ties to uh, the election results. Um, I think that's a that's an impossible uh, task right now. But I think in the very near term, some of this was was short covering. Some of this was was unwinding of, of positions that that may have started to go in the wrong direction, but could be reflecting that some of what we might see um, is is both growth positive, but also inflation um, positive, which is I think why you saw what you've seen in the bond market and um, in some of the leading indicators for for inflation, which may be why expectations for Fed policy, uh, i.e. A, a hike in December, did not drop precipitously. I think that was for many was one of the biggest surprises that we didn't see expectations for the Fed to just say, okay, too much uncertainty, too much volatility, we're going to back away in December. And that does not appear to be what the market is expecting based on uh, uh, futures. So speaking of the Fed, um, it would be great to sort of giving your focus on central banks and the current economic mega cycle, I guess you could describe it. Um, and also given the incredible shift in bond markets, I mean, really, the last two years have, have been about flattening lower long term yields, uh, regardless of what the short term does, maybe some increase in short term rates. But now we're seeing in euro dollar markets and treasury markets, um, we're seeing this radical steepening where the interest rate markets are pricing in this much wider risk premium. No one knows what's going to happen, but but when we think about yield curves, we think a lot about risk premiums and about what's the worst case scenario that the market now needs to keep in mind. Um, our note this morning, we pointed out that even if you don't see a rapid increase in U.S. inflation, but you see sort of some limitations around what the durable Good sector can do, and you return durable goods PCE to zero or a little bit up every year. That's a huge shift for the overall U.S. inflation dynamic. That series has been negative year over year for 20 years. Um, so that those sort of shifts in the bond market, we also sort of talked a, a fair bit this morning in the last 24 hours about the fact that we could see a politicized Fed. Uh, do you think that that's something that that is a valid concern? I, concern might not be the right word um, because it sort of implies a judgment. Um, over how how uh, the Trump administration should behave, but um, you know certainly for bond markets, this idea that a politicized Fed that isn't going to pay as close attention to inflation, that that's not something that's going to give you a lot of confidence to go out and take thirty years of interest rate risk. Um, so, uh, do do you think that's a valid concern from markets, and and do you think that's going to affect how the current Federal Reserve sort of interprets policy going forward, or or do you think that that's more of a tail risk that's sort of a little bit over focused on? Um, I think it's probably a little bit over focused on. I think it's natural given um, that uh, actually sort of neither side during the election period were terribly um, complimentary of the, the Fed and the job that it was doing. But I, I don't think we're, we're heading toward an era where the Fed is more politicized. I, I think, and maybe it's my personal bias because I have the hope that it remains an independent institution uh, is, is sort of clouding my judgment on this. But uh, I don't think it is being politicized. I think what's happening with this sharp reversal in bond yields is a reflection of greater inflation in an era where we've had greater concerns about deflation and now we have the real risk, maybe not of a long-term inflation problem, but a short-term inflation scare. And we've been in this era of very supportive central bank policy, a, a wide, wide gap in the dots plot between the expectations of the Fed as they lay them out on an annual basis and sort of the giggling at that by the market. And the market admittedly has been much more right on this and that the narrowing of the, uh, the, 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 the wide gap between the Fed's assumptions on, on Fed funds rate looking out to 2018 and the market's assumptions has been narrowing by the Fed perpetually coming down, not the market moving up. And now I think we have this realization that the market is going to have to move up. And maybe this idea that the Fed has trotted out certainly last year that we'd get a couple of, you know, two, three hikes this year. I think the markets laughed at that and, and you know, kept its expectations low. And sure enough, we probably will only have one this year, assuming they move in December. But I think reality is setting in that we may be sowing the seeds of a Fed that does need to step up. I do think that they will probably be biased to letting inflation run a little bit hot. 
The concern, of course, is that the market at some point perceives them to be behind the curve. And that's a very different dynamic than what has existed for the last several years. So this idea of a central bank put, um, I think, is starting to, uh, to dissipate. And we may be heading back into a more, quote, normal environment, which, by the way, I don't think is a bad thing. I actually think that the Fed um, should raise interest rates, probably should have a while ago, and that this idea that a 25, another 25 basis point is going to sort of rock the system, I think suggests a misunderstanding of what we've been dealing with for the last eight years anyway. This was a, this was a debt bubble that burst. It wasn't a problem with high interest rates uh, when, when we sort of toppled over in 2008. Yes, I think there was a necessity at the outset of the crisis to bring interest rates down, but I don't think there was the necessity to keep them low. Um, the, the, it, the, the growth that we needed came from deleveraging. The growth that we got was lower because we were in deleveraging. But this idea that interest rates had to stay low to stimulate the economy, I think, has lost its power as an argument. In fact, I, we're dealing with counterfactuals here. Many would say that are pro keeping interest rates as low as they are if the Fed had started raise raising interest rates earlier than, than now, it would have crushed the economy. But I think a just as valid a question to ask, still a counterfactual, but a valid question nonetheless is, well, what if the Fed stopped treating the economic patient like it was in, it was in, it's been in the trauma room all this time a few years ago? Has this been a suppressant on confidence, certainly at the business level? Has this caused dislocations in the economy um, that that might have been um, healed and eased if the Fed had taken that initial step toward policy normalization a few years ago instead of now. And, and I think that that's a valid question to ask. And I fall into the camp that thinks that a, when central banks are treating the economic patient like they're in the trauma room, that that doesn't stimulate confidence and it, and it, it, it disincentivizes investment and risk taking. And I, I think that Raising interest rates is the right thing here. I think it might unleash animal spirits. It, it's obviously to the benefit of savers. And when you look at households in the United States, it's about a four to one ratio of household interest earning assets versus um, interest paying uh, debt. So just on paper with simple math, there's four times as much sort of money that benefits from rising interest rates than is hurt by rising interest rates. Uh, the, the implications it's had for the financial industry, for pension funds, for insurance companies. So, you know, my glib attitude is, hey, let, let's give it a try here. Let, let's, let's get some inflation here. Let's, let's continue on this path toward policy normalization. Maybe it, it frees up some of this, um, uh, these animal spirits that I think have been um, extremely suppressed. Yeah, that's something I'm not sure we take quite the same view in the sense that there should have been um, lots of rate hikes earlier in the recovery. But I think we would both we would definitely agree with the view that recovery from financial crises takes a long time then this is not something that is new. This is something that's been researched very well over the years. Reinhardt and Rogoff are the best example. But you're looking instead of at a business cycle of a super business cycle where instead of recovery taking a year, two years, it's going to take 10 years. Right. And it is interesting to think about what would have happened if the Fed had raised interest rates to 50 BIPs, 1%, something like that in 2010 or 2011, 2012 maybe, um, would growth have dropped um, significantly further um, or would it have been higher? We don't know, right. but I, I, think, I think what we would definitely agree on is that it wouldn't have had the incremental effect on growth that um, many of the people that advocate maintaining very low rates seem to think it did have. The counterfactual, of course, is Europe um, with uh, Trichet's hike in um, the immediate post-crisis period. Um, how much of that was predestined based on the debt loads of the periphery and the um, political consequences in in the eurozone is is sort of an, you know another massive um, counterfactual argument. But um, it is interesting to think about how good things possibly could have been, whether keeping low rates had any incremental positive effect or maybe just a small one um, relative to the fact that it was going to take five to 10 years for U.S. consumers to begin leveraging again for balance sheets to be cleaned up. And and the U.S. did a pretty good job of this relative to other economies. So um, that that whole dynamic, I think, is very under discussed and, and forgotten amongst uh 
commentators on on both sides of the should rates be higher, should rates be lower issue. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. And I think that was an extremely important point as it relates to kind of cleaning things up, going through that deleveraging process, cleaning up balance sheets, the financial system. I think that's the the stark difference between the experience we've had since 2008 and really the multi-decade experience that Japan has had because coming out of their crisis, uh, their deflationary spiral, that's the antithesis of what they did. And, and, and they continue to be sort of mired in this, this stagnation. But I also agree that coming out of a, a debt super cycle, which clearly we are, and I, I think this is more of a post-debt super cycle era than a secular stagnation period. Maybe it's just semantics, but you're right. No, we we fully agree there. I, I there couldn't be more agreement. And it is a it is a it is at least a decade long process. And I think we've we've gone um, pretty far along in the process in terms of households. Unfortunately, we haven't really started the process at the public sector level. So then with regards to this economic cycle, it is currently one of the longest on record. Um, there are a number of forecasters who see no reason that it couldn't be the longest on record. Um, just because of this slow grinding recovery, the lack of leverage, the lack of dynamism throughout the economy, both on for households and for businesses, the lack of fixed investment. There's just all these sort of signals that things can go a lot further in terms of time, not necessarily in terms of level of output, but in terms of time, than people sort of seem to think. So, you know, don't need to prognosticate the next recession, but do you think that this cycle is going to continue sort of chugging along or do you think we're getting relatively close to the end or or where where are we in your opinion and with regards to the business cycle? So I, I absolutely agree. I think this will uh, continue to chug along and um, expansions, you know, to, to not just quote Janet Yellen, she happened to say it, but but it's been a view held by myself and many others for for, you know, generations, which is that Economic expansions rarely, if ever, die purely of old age. They die of excess. And you talked about fixed investment, uh, capital spending, capacity utilization, um, debt, which arguably we still have excess debt, but uh, excess inflation, excess monetary policy. Those are the things that tip you over into recession. And if there's one benefit to this having been a very sluggish recovery from the outset is you haven't built any of that excess. Uh, you know, Fixed investment as a share of you know, potential GDP is, is up quite a bit from the deep, deep, deep depression it was in back in 2009, but is only now back at levels where we used to bottom in recession. So we just don't have any of that excess right now, which I think elongates the, the, the process here. Um, if you look at the leading indicators, uh, whether it's you know conference boards variety or, or equities variety, there's no indication that we're at significant risk here. Uh, you know, Normally you've got a, a good, year or so from when the leading indicators peak to when you uh, turn down into recessions. Also, the leading indicators haven't even taken out their pre-recession high. And if you look at the last three cycles, economic cycles, you were still years away from the next recession when you finally did the round trip with the leading indicators, when they finally surpassed the pre-recession um, high. You then still had a lot of runway ahead of you. And Maybe it will be shorter this time, but it would be unprecedented if we were imminently heading into sort of economic doom without any indication from the leading indicators, with the leading indicators not even having taken out their prior high, with, with capital investment so weak, with a 75% capacity utilization rate, with no velocity of money, with limited inflation problem just budding right now, with interest rates still where they are. Now, I suppose the other side of that argues that with growth as anemic as it's been, it's maybe more at the mercy of, a, of, of some sort of black swan and economic shock. Sometimes that happens via commodity prices or, or geopolitics. But you know, barring that, I, I think the most likely path for the economy is to continue to, to chug along and, and probably avoid recession for uh, at least the near term. Earlier, we had talked about the federal funds rate and we had talked about sort of how the incremental impact of small changes in that are probably not terribly significant on the current economic cycle. Um, in that uh, back and forth we just had, we discussed the fixed investment figures and how they haven't been very large. Debt is relatively high, but it's not been plowed into buying actual stuff, right? right? It's been used to transfer cash flows between um, the 
the issuers of debt and the holders of equity, really. I mean, that, that, that's been the, the biggest use of debt um, for a lot of corporations. Um, tax distortions are a factor there as well. But the long and the short of it is you haven't seen very many people saying, okay, I'm going to go issue a bond and then build something, right? I'm going to use real resources based on financial uh, pull forward. I feel like both that and the impact of Fed rate hikes are in this space where we're talking about differences between the financial economy and the real economy, and that and that they're not the same thing. They're 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 affected by each other and they're related, but they're they're fundamentally separate items. Do you think that's the correct sort of framework to to use in the current economic landscape, or do you think that's sort of a a, a holdover from the extreme financialization we saw during the period of the sort of mid nineteen 1980s through roughly 2007, and then the the, the unwind of that post crisis. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, you touched on the the difference between asset prices and real economy prices, and we've never seen a gap as big as it is right now. And that has largely been, I think, driven by monetary policy. And if you look at the appreciation in in assets, it it is just trounced the appreciation in the in the real economy and i think that is somewhat a function of of monetary policy and the distortions associated with it i think that decisions corporations have made to in some cases borrow when they don't based on on their their balance sheets need to but i think the decision to borrow but to use it simply to buy back stock as opposed to invest longer term in capital spending is arguably a perfectly rational one um, that that the Fed is is sort of offering to them. You, you don't you haven't had the incentive for long-term capital investments for a variety of reasons. Weak global aggregate uh, demand, the fact that we're in this post-debt super cycle era of slow growth, the fact that your competition isn't doing it. So animal spirits is not driven by that. I've got, you know, kind of keep up keep up with my competition. Um, and in an environment where growth and asset prices has been the name of the game, you know, borrowing at, at effectively no interest uh, rate and, and using it to buy back your own stock, an environment where there's not a lot of IPOs, so it's very simple supply demand, has been a winning strategy. I, I'd like to think that we are at, at an inflection point here. In fact, what's interesting is if you look at market behavior um, uh, down below the, the macro level and you start to look at companies and or industries that have started to bias away from buying back stock and and more toward longer term capital investments, you're starting to see less performance, kind of a rolling over in performance by those companies that have been buyback oriented and an improvement in performance of those companies that are uh, in relative terms focusing more on CapEx. It's, It's nascent at this point, but I'd like to think that that is a trend we are starting to uh, to see because if not, then I think it's a problem for the market because if we lose that buyback thrust, but we don't offset it with longer term capital investments, then uh, you know maybe we're cooked is 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 too dramatic. But but certainly when you think about fund flows um, having been uh, negative uh, in on a cumulative basis in U.S. equities for this entire bull market, the fact that net long exposure for hedge funds has not gotten much up above the, the low 50s range, where normally in, in this long into a bull market, you'd be in the mid to high 60s range. Pension funds um, having more fixed income exposure than equity exposure. Um, really, the kind of the, the only game in town has been um, uh, corporations buying back their own stock. That has been the biggest support under this bull market. If we're transitioning to one where corporate earnings are boosted by longer term capital investments, I think that elongates things. But if we're really just seeing a rolling over of the impetus to borrow to buy back stock and there's nothing on the other side of that, then I think that's a big problem for the market. Do you think the economy is affected in the same way by a shutdown of the of the sort of pipeline that that we're sort of sketching out here of you know, buying back stock, reducing float uh, via debt versus, uh, oh, we built a factory there's no one that wants to buy our stuff and we owe a bunch of money. Uh, do, do you think that those two have the same economic impact in terms of something like employment, which is the ultimate real variable, I think? Um, or, or do you think that they're gonna, in the long run, all hash out to the same impact? So for instance, if, if corporations are no longer able to attractively transfer value from equity holders to debt holders, or sorry, debt holders to equity holders, uh, then, you know, is that going to have the same economic impact as 
corporations have built too much and need to need to own less stuff? Well, there there hasn't been much of an economic impact of of corporations being biased towards stock buybacks. It's had a it's had a great stock market impact. It's had a great impact on on the share prices, but it hasn't had an economic impact. Of course, the broader economic impact would come if we if we do enter in an era of an increased capital spending. The rub, of course. Is that we have a you know president elect that that ran on a platform of of trade protectionism and closing down borders and you know much of the benefits that would come from capital spending um, are among companies not just that are oriented domestically and and only sell to domestic consumers but has a global angle to it so we're sort of at I think a crossroads here where the conditions are starting to establish themselves for, for better capital spending, which feeds into job growth and opportunities. But if we sort of shut our borders to that um, uh, increased activity, then I, I think um, we, we sort of offset that. Um, so that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm worried about as it relates to uh, where I think we are going in terms of this inflection point but what, what may impinge on that as it relates to politics. Last question on the markets, and then we'll do a quick segment to finish up. Uh, earnings are likely to be positive year over year for the first quarter uh, in, uh, I think, six quarters uh, coming up in uh, Q4 of, or Q3 of 2015 or 2016 reporting. Yep. Do you think that that's going to provide a significant sort of psychological um, impact, or is that already priced in? People know that earnings quote, recession story and the earnings recovery is is already something people are aware was going to happen because of base effects and it's it's a non-factor or, or is it going to get people more excited to to own stocks? I think some of it is priced in, uh, you know, a month or so ago, I think the expectation was still that that third quarter would be a, you know, a slight negative, but, but clearly that, that, you know, we're moving into positive territory. And I think the notion that we were at an inflection point in earnings to some degree has been priced in. But I also think with valuations, at least mildly stretched, depending on what metric you used, you really did need to see earnings start to um, do more of the heavy lifting. So I, I think it's less about, will this be a huge positive for the market, um, but more that it, it had to happen, or I think we would have had much more trouble in, in the market. So um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a net positive and expectations into 2017 have, uh, have lifted pretty uh, meaningfully, which has helped forward valuations. Now I think we move into, uh, you know, are we, are we setting expectations a bit too high? I also think what happens with, with energy prices in particular is important and also the dollar. Um, a, a, a better environment, I think, would be stability in both. If this range-bound trading that we've seen in both oil and the dollar persists, I think that's a healthier environment than a dramatic swing in either direction. Uh, so uh, that, that's, the, that's the peril of the last couple of years because we saw an unprecedented spike in the dollar and an equally unprecedented plunge in the oil, uh, oil prices in a short period of time which is what did the damage to earnings. Obviously, the energy sector is related to the crash in oil and to the industrial sector and the export-related companies in terms of, of, of the dollar. We're getting the reversal effect there. But it, you know, in a perfect world, this is not the environment we live in for the next couple of years where we're at the mercy of these dramatic swings. I think a more range-bound environment allows valuation and earnings to to be on a path more tied to supply and demand and traditional fundamentals and i think that that certainly would would make the analysis of, of corporate earnings a bit of an easier thing to do that said i think the reason why we had an earnings recession but not an economic recession was because of those factors uh that that it didn't take the overall economy down with it it took earnings down because of of, of just how dramatic the decline in earnings were associated with that surge in the dollar and, and plunge in oil but you know hopefully we move into an environment where where earnings are more driven by traditional supply demand economic growth nominal growth um fundamentals and not these dramatic swings so i, I certainly uh, would like to see that as a uh, as a characteristic of 2017. So we'll close out then with our segment trading rich and trading cheap. So we'll talk about sort of a couple different subjects that to get your opinion on on how they're perceived, to get your take on whether they're maligned, whether they're something that has a bright future. It doesn't have to be market related necessarily, um, but it's just an interesting way to sort of express some views on some things. So the first one would be trading rich or trading cheap pollsters. <laughs> they're they're done. 
So I think they were trading too rich uh, leading into this election, even though there was concern that maybe they were going to get it wrong, as was the case with Brexit. I think the the efficacy of, of polls, at least how they're taken now, um, has had, you know, it's out the window. Uh, I think our, our reliance on those, certainly for elections, um, will be close to nil, uh, unless they figure out a better way to do it. Okay, so trading rich or trading cheap social media? Um, probably trading a little bit rich in terms of volumes with the election. I, I think that that really drove a lot of eyeballs and, and usage of social media. And I think that naturally will wane uh, post-election, although not immediately. Um, but it's here to stay. Uh, it is. It is not at dying as a as a as an amazing source of of information and access. But uh, the attention that that people gave to it, at the exclusion of a lot of other things, I think will wane. A lot has been discussed around what the Trump victory means for the coal industry. Um, there's also been some pushback in terms of what it could mean for clean energy subsidies. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, you're seeing record lows in terms of installed kilowatt our cost for solar installations, uh, lots of competition around uh, solar panel prices and um, lots of innovation going on in batteries. Uh, Tesla is everyone's favorite stock to talk about all the time, you know, bull or bear side. So what do you think about clean energy? Is it trading rich or trading cheap? Um, maybe somewhere in between. I, I think the idea of clean energy um, is is a wonderful thing, but I think investors long ago uh, realized that uh, the, the idea of clean energy and its, its uh, unquestionable growth and uh, market share that it will garner, um, that versus whether these are viable companies with a legitimate earnings stream um, are two different things. So I, I, you know, I, I want to plan on Tesla uh, stock, but I don't, I don't analyze any individual companies, let alone Tesla. But I think um, I, I think the idea of clean energy, alternative energy sources as, as growing in market share is there, but I, I think broadly it's yet to manifest itself in, in, a, in an industry of companies that are highly attractive investment vehicles. Okay, so post-crisis uh, proprietary trading was close to banned, not quite there, but close to banned through uh, the passage of Dodd-Frank. Uh, the financial industry in general is facing large threats in terms of a lot of jobs from the active-passive dynamics we discussed earlier. There was a lot of maligning of bankers uh, post-crisis, you know, blame for the subprime mortgage uh, collapse, so on and so forth. So do you think the financial industry is trading rich or is it trading cheap? I think it's trading cheap. Um, I think um, a very broad brush has been used by politicians, et cetera, on, on the financial services industry and, and its value to the, the public. And um, I, I think that uh, what we do broadly um, is necessary. It's largely good. I think the people in our industry are largely good um, and not out for our own benefit. There are certainly I think plenty of bad eggs. And I think part of the problem is that when we had the, the crisis and the subsequent bear market in 2000, I think it was a more a bit more evenly distributed. Uh, people could watch what happened to the leaders of, of Enron um, and Tyco and felt that there was a bit more fairness in how that unfolded. Kind of everybody lost something. And I think this one was different in the sense that whether it was a function of bailouts and the fact that you know very few, if any, went to to jail. There weren't the financial fines associated with it, and that in some areas compensation sort of ramped right back up. I think has been used to define an entire industry as opposed to using it to define a small subset of that industry. But I do think that the public feels like it got the uh, short end uh, on this one, and I and I understand it. Um, but but as a result, I think. This industry has been maligned so much that um, hopefully it means we're, we're closer to the bottom in terms of perception of what uh, the financial industry broadly um, does for the, for the benefit of the economy. And I, I've been very quick to tell people that I think it's a great industry in which to, to work. I think there's wonderful opportunities and it's been such a maligned industry that, that 
you know, maybe that sets up some some opportunities in terms of perception about what we do, but also opportunities for um, for for younger folks to to come into this industry. I think it certainly would be would be welcome. I mean, I, there's nothing that makes me happier personally than seeing somebody that's excited about the financial industry. You know, excited about the idea of picking stocks or analyzing economies or understanding the bond market. Um, so there's, I, I mean, who knows how things will work out? But but I will say it, it is nice to see that there are still some young people who who like what goes on in the financial financial industry enough enough to consider that maybe that's the right career path for me. So anyhow, uh, last one, uh, philanthropy is that trading rich or trading cheap? You're involved with the Make a Wish Foundation. Um, you've been you were on the national board of directors for a number of years and are now involved in Connecticut. Um, in the wake of the election, um, you know we've seen a couple of press releases from places like the ACLU that have seen large uh, donation spikes. Um, you know, sort of people taking frustration from the result at the polls and uh, channeling that into uh, causes that they think might not get enough attention from the next administration, whether that's uh, the right thing to do or not, another question. But uh, the you know philanthropy industry sort of seems to have a little bit of a tailwind here. Do you think philanthropy as a concept is trading richer, is trading cheap? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd like to think it's trading cheap and that that we are in an era where people will be more philanthropically minded. You certainly see that in in surveys of the younger generation, they've got that in their mindset to a greater degree than I think generations uh, prior. And you know, from personal experience, uh, it is it is incredibly uh, rewarding. Um, I think not only the the financial contributions, but the personal contributions and being able to uh, get involved at the board level and and meet really fascinating people who have decided to you know spend some of their their extra time in 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 those areas and I think you know there has to be a personal connection you have to find your own passion and then the desire the time the ability to devote to that um, passion uh, financially in time um, it's really easy to find the, the 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 time and the the inclination and the resources. To do that, and I and I hope uh, that what we're seeing with the trends of younger people um, getting more involved and and that that desire to um, think outside of their own sort of personal growth and and uh, you know you know personal financial uh, lives, um, I hope is is the beginning of a very a meaningful trend. So it's one of the things that I'm most pleased about when we when the younger generation is often seen as a more selfish generation more of a me generation more of a, a social media uh um surface uh don't get deep kind of generation they also tend to be um quite a bit more generous and, and i think that's a wonderful thing i would certainly agree there and so that's that's a nice note of optimism to close out with two positive comments about young people um to finish off the conversation so i just want to say thank you so much liz and saunders for joining us this has been a fascinating conversation we're really really looking forward to releasing this and um it's been great having you on thanks so much thanks george i appreciate it joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.